Hello and welcome to another episode of Military History Plus, the podcast that examines the history of warfare in breadth and depth. As ever, I'm your co-host, Dr. Spencer Jones, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Mr. Gary Sheffield. Hi. And hi, Gary. Today, we're actually going to have more of an interactive episode in the sense we're going to be answering some of our audience's questions. We put out a call for questions on previous episodes, put out a call on social media and via email. And I think it's fair to say we actually had a lot of questions come in, including some real stumpers, some real brain teasers uh, and some really interesting questions that have come out for this. So it's it's going to be a pleasure for us to try and answer some of these questions. So many came in, we can't answer them all, but do keep your questions coming in. Uh, we hope to do future Q&A episodes in a subsequent series. And some of the questions were so good, we thought we wouldn't just spend you know, a throwaway few minutes on a single question. We devote an entire episode to them. Absolutely right. There is, uh, there's, there's some that have really, really sort of tickled our fancy. I, I particularly mentioned Alexander Rose's question uh, posted on social media about is there a universal experience of combat, which I think is, is a really interesting idea uh, to revisit. Um, questions such as what what remaining areas could prove the most fruitful for new World War II research from Ian Kearns uh, and many others as well. So some of these will produce entire episodes. But there's also some questions that we've picked out that we think are interesting, that we wanted to answer and we think uh, we can answer in a relatively short space of time, Gary. So um, without further ado, I'd like to just get into these questions. And the first question we picked out that I'm going to go to you for your thoughts came from Henry Hyde. And he asked a deceptively simple question. How revolutionary were the armies of revolutionary France? Well, hello, Henry. Uh, Hen Henry's a friend and he runs an excellent podcast called Battle Chat devoted to wargaming and military history. And I'd encourage people to go off and listen to that as well. Really interesting question because an older scholarship argued that the armies of revolutionary France were pretty well a complete break from what had happened before. So the picture is you've got these very choreographed battles of the mid-18th century, so the armies of Frederick the Great and so on and so forth, uh, rigid soldiers, rigid discipline. Then a, along come the revolutionary, uh, the armies of revolutionary France in the 1790s. They don't fight in line. They fight in sort of masses, these columns. They have uh, lots of skirmishes, up to 25% like, of their of their troops are, are in a skirmish role. And that's seen as being you know, utterly different from what came before. Well, more recent scholarship actually suggests there's a good deal of continuity between the mid-18th century period and the revolutionary period. Uh, so, for example, the Austrians would use lots of Grenza uh, frontier troops in, a, in a, a, a light infantry role. Of course, the British fighting in North America in the War of the American Revolution, uh, ditched a lot of what we think of as classic 18th century forms of fighting. So not only did they um, concentrate a lot more on, on, on skirmish fighting, but they, they hacked back their uniforms to make them uh, more comfortable, more practical to fight in on the North American frontier and all, all that sort of thing. So actually, the armies of uh, revolutionary France, France are perhaps less revolutionary than they would have have been thought of um, 20, 30, 40 years ago. 
Having said that, they do fight in a rather different way and they do achieve uh, a good deal of success initially. Uh, and the idea that they fought in column to harness their revolutionary fervor actually is it, it, it's not it's it, it's really because actually they were not well enough disciplined and trained to fight in in in, in line as other armies have done um, but they they do make a difference they do fight in a different way it's worth remembering that the army of the french revolution the french army was an army of young men so bonaparte became a general of brigade at age 24 he jumped from being a captain as a result of his stellar performance at the Siege of Toulon against the British in 1793. And he wasn't the only man who had that sort of rapid promotion at a rapid age. So Michel Ney, later, of course, one of Napoleon's principal marshals, he became a brigadier general at 27, and he was a divisional general at 31. So that, I think, is something that is really quite revolutionary about the army of the French Revolution. We mustn't forget that being a general in the French Revolutionary Army was a bit dodgy, because unlike most armies in history, the French revolutionaries were quite prepared to execute failed commanders. So just one among several examples, uh, Alexandre de Beauharnais, who was the commander-in-chief of the Army of the Rhine, was executed in July 1794 because he had been in command when the uh, Austrians and the Prussians captured the town of Mainz uh, after a siege. And as a commanding general, he paid for this failure with his head. And it's worth mentioning that his widow, Josephine, who was also banged up in prison the same time as he was, she went on, of course, to meet and marry the young, thrusting General Bonaparte, and of course becomes Empress of France uh, in 1804. And their son, the son of Alexandra and Josephine, uh, Eugène, becomes Napoleon's stepson, and he becomes a distinguished general in his own right. In fact, he becomes Viceroy of Italy under Napoleon and, and commands a sizable force in the Russian campaign of 1812. So unlike non-revolutionary armies, to be a revolutionary army general can lead to great fame, great fortune at an early age. Equally, it can lead to the guillotine if you get things wrong. It's also worth mentioning the context of warfare. It's rapacious warfare. So the French actually seized vast amounts of, of treasure and loot and even you know uh, art and so on from, from their victories in the 1790s. And whatever historians may today think about these armies, looking at them objectively with the benefit of hindsight, they seemed revolutionary at the time. Although in reality, I think there are stronger continuities between 18th century warfare and the warfare of the 1790s then would have been generally recognised a generation or two ago. Mm. Uh, very interesting uh, commentary on that, Gary. I, I'm not an expert on the Revolutionary Wars at all. I'm an absolute amateur dabbler, it has to be said. But uh, I'm, uh, one thing that I, I would just add to that is recently reading about um, 
early revolutionary France, and particularly during the Terror and Robespierre, one thing that struck me was the the revolutionary level of mobilization in France and the the way that France's war industries, its 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 nascent war industries, have been turned over in an incredible way in the early 1790s to production. And I'm I'm going purely on memory, but. The Robespierre book that I recommended in the summer reads in season one, writes, it, it's, there's a lot about the the amount of war industry that was um, had been taken over by the government in Paris in uh, 1793 and 94, and the sheer scale of production that they were produced. The Paris factories alone were producing more firearms than the entirety of Great Britain uh, at this stage. So I think there is a a deeper revolutionary element in in terms of uh, what we would though the term wasn't used at the time, what we might also called the home front, the, the level of commitment to the war, uh, which is is interesting. But of course, that's slightly different to Henry's question, which is how revolutionary are the armies of the war? Yeah, but of course, being academics, we're very used to taking questions and turning <laughs> them into things other than the ones that originally asked. Uh, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. Of course, uh, Lazare Carno, who was a minister of war in the 1790s, famously um, declared a levée en masse in which at least in theory, the entire population of France was mobilised for war. I seem to remember that the, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, that he said, uh, among other things, the old men will be carried into town squares to rally the population with their rhetoric. Well, I quite quite fancied that role. It seems to be less dangerous than going off going off and fighting. Also, <laughs> so, something else I think is actually quite revolutionary is the uh, what. The war aims of France. So generally speaking, in the 18th century, armies are fighting limited wars, limited in the sense that at the end of the war, you, 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 you take a province or some fortresses from an enemy, you pay an indemnity maybe. It's very rare to have a sort of total war aim because Poland disappears in three partitions in the 18th century. And yet revolutionary France they succeed in annexing by the end of the 1790s what's now Belgium, what's now the Netherlands, uh, the West Bank of the Rhine. Uh, they really have uh, a very total, if I can put it that way, uh, idea of what the war is about. And of course, their enemies, particularly the British, respond in kind. And so mm. you do see the emergence of what we today, I guess, would say a, a form of, of, of total war. Uh, emerges. Mm, so yeah. Henry, thanks very much. Um, that's a great question and it may be worth revisiting the whole question of revolutionary France at some point for a, for a full podcast in the future. Mm, absolutely. Um, from revolutionary wars to um, revolutionary filmmaking, uh, this is one that may also result in a, an overall uh, podcast episode, but Alex of Storm of Steel Wargaming, a former student of us at the University of Birmingham's First World War MA, runs a very successful, popular YouTube channel focusing on wargaming, Storm of Steel Wargaming. He asks a, a, a bit of a teasing question on social media. He asked, your favourite war films and why, with the caveat, historical accuracy is not required. And I think we'll probably end up doing an episode of war films, but just as a taste, rather than perhaps your ultimate favourite war film, Gary, can you just tell us one of your favourite war films? Oh, gosh. Uh, OK, it's a film about war rather than a war film in that sense, but uh, Went the Day Well? Oh, yes, yes. The film comes out in late 1942. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, massive spoiler alert... <clears throat> 
it's the uh, the same basic plot as the eagle has landed. Uh, the eagle has landed basically. Yeah, how be polite. Borrowed the plot of Went the Day Well, but Went the Day Well Well is a infinitely uh, superior film. Group of British soldiers turn up in a small English village during the Second World War. They turn out to be the to be to be Germans, the spearhead of uh, an invasion. And the whole thing revolves around the reaction of the locals and the response of the British authorities once they find out what, what what's going on. I'd go as far to say it's not just my favourite war film, it's my favourite film ever. And it's uh, a fine example of, of filmmaking which very much re re reflects the time it's, in which it's produced. It's, it's basically made in, in the spring of 1942. Mm -hmm. when things mm -hmm. are going very badly for Britain. So the fall of Tobruk, loss of Singapore and so on. And it's sort of a call to arms. Don't drop your guard. Invasion can still happen. By mm -hmm. the time it comes out, it's Alamein has happened. And, you know, the broad sunlit uplands, I think, as Churchill put it, are in sight. And so actually the mood in which it's released is not the same mood in which it is made. But it's a it's a wonderful film. It's not simply a historic artifact. It's very tense. It's got some wonderful performances, including amazingly uh, uh, enough, um, uh, Thora Heard playing an all action hero or heroine. <laughs> she plays a land girl, uh, and she's there, you know, uh, involving in the fighting at the end, shooting Germans with with her Lee Enfield. So one of the more unlikely all action heroes you can think of. So my film. My selection on this occasion is uh, Went the Day Well, uh, absolutely superb film. Um, I don't know how many times I've watched it. It still remains great. So what's Fantastic. Yours? Well, I, again, not my overall favourite. I'd love to discuss my overall favourites in a, a, an individual podcast, but a film that, that not many people, uh, even sort of war studies enthusiasts have watched, but I have a real soft spot for, uh, Cross of Iron by Sam Peckinpah. Um, based on based on the German novel the, the Willing Flesh, which is basically an unreadable novel in in a lot of ways about the horrors of the Eastern Front, semi autobiographical, and Cross of Iron is Sam Peckinpah's only war movie. His powers as a director were in relative decline by the time he made it. His drinking was really out of control, but this is still the mind that made these extremely hard-hitting and in some ways difficult films The Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs and if there's one thing that Peckinpah does better than any director of that era it's capture the chaos of violence and given a really big um, a broad scope to actually do it in Cross of Iron he, he really I think he does a, an excellent job of just getting across the sheer confusion of being in a battle. I think he does it actually and I'll go so far as to say I think he does it better than any other director has ever done just you're in the middle of battle and you have no idea what is going on. The fast cuts he uses to show different scenes of action, that just the sense of overwhelming chaos is really well done. It's a film about Germans on the Eastern Front in early 1943. They're actually retreating post-Stalingrad. They're, they're down around the Kerch Peninsula and the Crimea, which is where the book was set. Uh, and it's about a group of really tough German survivors, really. They've been on the Eastern Front for several years. Um, they're, they're, they're cynical, they're veterans, uh, they're led by this absolute super tough guy who's holding them together called Steiner. Um, and they have an officer, a snobbish officer who's obsessed with winning an Iron Cross, the Cross of Iron. And in some ways, it's a, a sort of 
it's it's a very British film in some ways, and you can certainly see the influence of Vietnam in this movie. It's as much about the the cynicism, what it's like to be a real grunt versus a polished officer who arrives in the in the field. Uh, it's it's not a perfect film. There's some oddities in it. Uh, Peck and Power run out of money before the end, which means that the film ends on a slightly odd note where the characters just suddenly break down into laughter in the middle of a battle. Uh, it sort of works in the context of the film. But the actual capture, the, the, the nature of the film and the power of the performances, uh, the, the scale of it as well, I think really does something. James Mason, who plays the the, the anti-hero really um, in this, uh, uh, James Coburn, sorry, um, uh, is the main, the main anti-hero, the tough veteran who's holding everyone together. Great growly performance uh, as Corporal Rolf Steiner, an absolute hard, you know, real hard nut. He can do absolutely anything. Um, but it's 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 a cynical story. It's a story, I think, as much about Vietnam, but it's also about survival in just the most appalling conditions and 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 trying to hold it together. And some of the absurdities of war as well, that these people are fighting for their lives and they're being bossed around by, by staff officers uh, miles from the front. It's not a perfect film. That It's... It's got its problems, undoubtedly, and it, it had a troubled production. But if nothing else, I think it's it's quite an unusual take on a film. And I stand by what I said. I think the battle sequences, nothing's quite captured the chaos of battle like like Cross of Iron. And it's a film not many people have seen. So um, when I've recommended it to people, I, it, it's a bit of a Marmite film. People either love it or they hate <laughs> yeah. it. It produces a strong reaction. But if you've not seen it, it's definitely worth tracking down. Uh, you can get it on streaming services uh, for very small fees. Okay, because um, I've always thought, I've not seen that film, I must admit, but I've always thought that the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan are probably as near as you're likely to get to a realistic mm. battle scene. I mean, how, how do the battle scenes in Cross of Iron match up to Private Ryan? So they're, they're different in the sense that this was made in the 70s. You couldn't have such explicit gore as you have in Private Ryan, where you have limb removal and you know, really in your face, blood and guts. Um, it's not as artistically made as Private Ryan, that that iconic scene where they're running up the beaches and, and Spielberg is trying to capture um, almost like a cameraman's view when you're behind the, the guys running towards the... Um, the dead ground at Omaha Beach. You don't have that kind of artistry. What you have got is, is Peckinpah's trademark fast cuts where there is a battle going on. And you as the viewer are almost bewildered about where the front line is. You, you're in the, it really captures the German position is being overrun by masses of Soviet soldiers and armour. You don't know what's happening. There's tanks here. There's, there's infantry there. And it, it captures this, I don't know what's going on, but I've got to get out of here feel. There's some stagey elements, uh, like tanks coming through walls and things like this, which not not so much. Um, but it's it's just got this sense of of just the scale of chaos. Whereas even in Private Ryan, you you Spielberg's a masterful director. He establishes um, time and space. You know how far everyone has to go from the shore, from the um, the waterline to the uh, the bluffs to the bunkers. You've got a direction in which you're facing. Whereas the culminating battle for Cross of Iron. You just know the position's collapsing uh, and you've got to get out of there. Um, it's also interesting the way it, it humanises the Germans in this as well, that they, um, the, the characters are really anti-heroes. They're not particularly likeable people, you know, but they're just survivors. They're just trying to survive. And uh, there's no real comment on Nazism or the horrors of it, except in the opening credits. And um, you can actually catch these opening credits on YouTube if you just search for Cross of Iron opening. Uh, Peckinpah at his subversive best, where he's, he's interspersing 
German propaganda reels with this German child um, children's song being sung by by children. And it's the way that, and that's the opening credits with the cast appearing. And it's the way it goes from everything is wonderful and everyone's cheering and Heil Hitlering and there are flags and there's victories. Without a single word of dialogue or a single explanatory caption, it shows how the war is starting to go very badly for Germany oh, yeah, by 43. Okay. And brilliant. If you watch nothing else, look at Cross of Iron opening on YouTube. Okay. Uh, really, only, really well done. I mean, the only pack and file film I know really well is uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, basically because I'm a Bob Dylan fan. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the stylized use of violence in that film is just something else. Yeah, okay. I, You've convinced me. I, I will go away and, uh, and read this, possibly with... A night when my wife is out by the sound of it. It doesn't sound like <laughs> no. Her, her and you, film. you you may get a, a a negative reaction to it, but you will have a reaction to Crossvine. So that's my recommendation. Okay. Well, okay. Um, I haven't got the list of questions in front of me. Even <clears> if I had, I couldn't read them because I'm having eye problems at the moment. So, um, Spence, what's the next question? Uh, help, hopefully, I do. So, a question from Andy Rawson, who. Uh, and- uh, my Asks. former MPhil student. There you go. A prolific uh, First World War author, author himself. Um, he asks comparisons between the American Civil War and World War One, Similarities and differences? Lessons learned or forgotten? And um, this is a, a, a really interesting question, and it harks a little bit back to our previous episodes when we looked at the first Battle of Bull Run in 1861, and we looked at battle tactics of the American Civil War. Because there is an idea that has is not completely without foundation that European armies paid absolutely no attention to the American Civil War and therefore they were caught completely by surprise when the First World War broke out. And part of this, I think, comes from uh, von Molke the Elder, the senior soldier in Germany's dismissive comment of the armies of the American Civil War as armed mobs. I forget the exact phrasing. Oh, but it armed, armed mobs running around the countryside, something like that, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah. And this dismissal. And certainly, I, the, as, as, and, the, uh, and I'm, I'm indebted to Paddy, conversations with Paddy Griffith about this, continental European armies did not pay that much attention to the American Civil War. And that was largely for practical reasons, because the wars of German unification were raging at the time and were a much more pressing matter, uh, much more real matter, and learning lessons from things like the Austro-Prussian War of 1866 or the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71 were more important. This all said, the British Army worked very hard to try and learn something from the American Civil War. In full disclosure, I'd like to reference the work of Michael Somerville, who was my PhD student, whose PhD was later turned into a book called From Bull Run to Bull War, which charts the British Army's grappling with the ideas of the American Civil War from the 1860s up until 1899, when the Boer War not completely replaced the Civil War, but but started to occupy a lot more of the mind. Yeah, I, I, I examined uh, the PhD, actually. Mind. There we go. Again, there's no nepotism on this show at None all. Whatsoever. It's not that we don't happen to know everybody and <laughs> we keep referencing. <laughs> but the, the point being is that the, the British Army did try and learn something from the American Civil War for very practical reasons. One, there was a concern that the army might have to fight against the Americans at some point, either intervention into the Civil War itself or defending Canada against possibly a resurgence uh, and unified United States post-1865. And once that threat receded, which it receded very quickly, it must be said, the army maintained its interest in the American Civil War because it saw itself 
militarily, purely militarily, no social political context to this, but militarily in a not entirely dissimilar position to the Confederate armies, outnumbered, outgunned by larger continental foes, such as France, Germany and Russia, and having to rely on a qualitative edge to offset the enemy's numerical advantage. And so this is one of the reasons why the, the British Army tended to focus on lessons it could draw from the Confederacy, because these seemed practicable uh, for a small British army fighting a larger European one. I seem to remember, I did some, some work on this many years ago now. There's also, of course, the attraction of Robert E. Lee. He was a gentleman. Mm, and mm. the British seem to naturally gravitate towards the Confederacy rather than that sort of rough, drunk Ulysses S. Grant. But of course, uh, <clears throat> there is this long tradition of British scholarship, <clears throat> excuse me, on the American Civil War. Uh, G.F.R. Henderson, uh, Colonel G.F.R. Henderson, who wrote the book on Stonewall Jackson, for example, mm. uh, and both Basil Littlehart and J.F.C. Fuller uh, both wrote, well, they all wrote you know, pretty distinguished works on the Civil War. Though I seem to remember that uh, one of, I think it's one of Fuller's books on the Civil War, which came out in the 20s or 30s, he was using it as a, a thinly veiled vehicle to convey criticism of the British generalship in in the First World War. So there's a whole mm. load of connections which go, in fact, mm. well beyond 1914 and 1918. Uh, the mm. British are still mm. in, the, in the interwar period, uh, to some extent, viewing their own First World War through the lens of the Civil War. Absolutely right. And the other other factor is that the, uh, just to pick up on GFR Henderson, he wrote a, a number of books about the Civil War. He's fascinated by it. He was one of the British Army's foremost thinkers in the 1880s and 1890s. Tragically died from overwork uh, when he was working on the official history of the Boer War in 1900. I think that is something that we can all sympathise with, especially as hardworking academics. We can, death by overwork is a, is a real threat. Well, I, I can actually say that there is a bar in the Joint Services Command and Staff College at Shrivenham called the Henderson Bar, named after GFR Henderson. And I was one of the people uh, responsible, actually, for making sure that this name was enshrined in the new Joint Staff College, so we keep the, the name of, of Henderson. Well, going. I'm very pleased to hear that. <laughs> who go into the bar I have no idea who he is but nonetheless there's a bar name <laughs> but just to wrap this up and wrap up our answer to Andy's question first of all I'd say GFR Henderson although his books sadly are long out of print he wrote a number of books about the Civil War including battle studies that were written for uh, British Army officers to study and learn something for and they're actually terrific his book about the, the Fredericksburg campaign complete with maps if you can lay your hands on a copy of that it's an absolute gem he went to the USA he toured the battlefields as part of his writing with this and spoke to veterans so this is a really interesting work so the Army worked really hard to learn from this and perhaps the most in some ways, and we can play around with this a little bit, I'm teasing a little bit with this, perhaps the most important influence of the Civil War was on Lord Kitchener, who is alleged to have said, and it's always difficult with Lord Kitchener because he didn't write anything down and he's we have to rely on other people's information, that um, in a moment of frustration in early 19, the early part of the First World War, explaining why the First World War was bound to be a long conflict, he, he cited the example of the Civil War and that it, it took the Union with all its numbers and resources and greater wealth four years to subdue the Confederacy, which was a fraction of its size and wealth. Why do you think it's going to 
be any quicker at fighting Germany. Uh, it may be apocryphal, but it sounds probable. Kitchener was a, was a student of, of military history himself. Uh, it's quite possible he could have made this comparison. Question here from Bob Cordery. Interesting one because it's it's First World War, but it's beyond what we've been discussing. And the question is, do other participant nations in the Great War have a similar lions led by donkeys thread running through their histories of the war, or is it just restricted to the UK and the British Empire? Okay, well, hi Bob, who's another another friend. Um Really interesting question. Now, I wouldn't claim to be the world's living expert on every nation that took part in the First World War, um, but there are different approaches to it. So, for example, in Germany, people today don't think that much about the First World War simply because the Second World War, for them, was such an overwhelming catastrophe that almost everything gets swallowed up in in its wake, as, as it were. So Germans simply don't have the same sort of thoughts uh, or in, in terms of a the popular narrative that the British do about the First World War. So uh, the, the First World War simply isn't that important for, for, for the Germans as it is for the British. The French strikes me there's a slightly ambivalent attitude because they won. Um, they defeated the old enemy Germany, having been defeated by the Germans in 1870-71. And as far as I'm aware, people like Foch, uh, and uh, and and Joff, uh, maintain a degree of respect, um, but again, it's complicated because it's all wrapped up in Second World War history. And one of the key French generals in the First World War, of course, is Marshal Pétain, who then emerges as the at least nominal leader of the Vichy government in the Second World War, which hugely complicates his his historical legacy. And if we go out into the old British Empire, well, then you have a really interesting um, mixture of you. So somewhere like Australia, there is a strong lions led by donkeys uh, view of generals. But it's all about the Brits. It's about Hague. Whereas someone like uh, Monash, uh, Lieutenant General Sir, Sir, Sir John Monash, commander of the Australian Corps in 1918, is hailed as uh, a great soldier and a great Australian hero, to the extent that there uh, is a sort of rumbling campaign um, to get Monash posthumously promoted to field marshal <coughs> in Australia. Mm. Uh, now, I've got very good links with, uh, as, as indeed I know you have, Spence, with uh, our equivalents in Australia, so academic mm. military historians, and they tear their hair out at the sort of <laughs> Australian nationalism wrapped up with this view of the First World War. And I, I can remember um, Professor Peter Stanley, who's an excellent historian, uh, writing a very brief review of a book called Monash, The Outsider Who Won, who, who, who won a War. And his review was, well, Monash wasn't an outsider and he didn't win the war. <laughs> so, so there is this inflated view of the importance of Australian generalship. And, you know, the Australian Corps was absolutely superb fighting formation. And uh, Monash was a highly effective commander. But it was one corps among many on the Western Front, albeit an unusually effective one. And you see mm -hmm. some of the same sort of things in Canada, except for Monash, Reed, Arthur Curry, 
the commander of the Canadian Corps. But even then, it's slightly more ambivalent because, of course, the commander of the of the Canadians uh, at the moment of what's regarded as being their greatest battle, Vimy Ridge in April 1917, uh, was a Brit. It was mm. Julian Big. Uh, anyway, I think that Vimy is not nearly as important a victory as the Canadian contribution to Amiens in August 1918. So I think the British are unusual in having the lines led by Donkey's myth that we have. Other states don't have them either because they don't consider the First World War to be as important as the Second World War. Or they have this very mixed view in which you have donkey bashing, the donkeys mm. all being Brits, uh, matched alongside their own heroes, their own commanders uh, from, from Australia and Canada. So it's a bit of a mixed picture. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really have a, a great deal to add on top of this, uh, uh, to be quite honest. But one one point I would add is about Hungary. So I, I'm lucky enough to have a good contacts in Hungary. And for for if there's one country that perhaps had the most awful First World War imaginable, it's Hungary. Hungary comes out of the war denuded of territory. It's immediately invaded by Romania. Almost as soon as the, the First World War ends, it loses huge chunks of territory and it's still unhappy about it uh, a century later. And um, the Hungarian War Museum, which is terrific, incidentally, if anyone's ever in Budapest, it's all the captions in English, incredible, old, well, old-fashioned in the very best sense of the word, War Museum. Well worth a, a, a several hours of your time. The portrayal of the First World War there is is quite interesting because the the Hungarians are are complain about basically being bound to Conrad von Hotzendorf's strategy, and he is portrayed very much as an architect of the empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire's destruction through his his lack of sense, and the, the Hungarians as as victims of Austrian incompetence uh, on think, either I the eastern they, front. I think they have a point about Conrad. At one point, he was hailed as one of the great strategists of the First World War. He was anything but. Mm, mm. He's somebody who's truly difficult to rehabilitate. And if you're looking for a donkey of the First World War, um, <laughs> perhaps he's the one. Perhaps there's a, an enterprising uh, scholar out there who's uh, fluent in German who's willing to take on this uh, this man. But it was interesting to me that in the War Museum, the and for Hungary, of course, then there's just decades of problem and tragedy as a result of the First World War. So they descend into fascism in the 20s and 30s, almost inevitably. They get caught up in Germany's war in the Second World War. That goes horribly wrong. They get conquered by the Russians. They rebel. They're crushed. So 20th century Hungarian history is just a horrible nightmare that begins with the um, uh, the First World War. And certainly the War Museum's portrayal is... and. Um, incompetent Austrian commanders were to blame. So perhaps there is a lions led by donkeys yeah, yeah. thread there as well. I mean, I, th- I think, I mean, just to, to draw that, that bit together, it's just well worth reiterating. We shouldn't just look at the First World War um, from an Anglo-centric perspective. You know, mm, mm. Other, other people, other countries, even countries which are culturally and historically very close to Britain, like Canada and Australia, uh, have, have a different spin on it. Mm. And I think a point that was actually made to me only uh, only a few weeks ago, which Trisha hadn't really grasped, but is worth emphasising to listeners. There's lots of people out there who say, uh, and we get this on, I certainly I get the, a lot of this on social media. Why don't you study the French more? Why don't you study the Germans more? Well, the simple answer is I can't speak the language to a sufficient level. Um, but a point that was made to me uh, is that in France uh, in particular, there just isn't the same type of military history as we have in Britain. It's there is military history in France, but it's it's different. the The French academic tradition is a little different. 
French book sales are a little different, that the way it works is just not quite the same. And so it's difficult to compare like for like in terms of uh, is there a alliance led by donkey's myth because just the way different nations approach history is is different what sells in what is popular in britain or the english-speaking world isn't necessarily going to be popular out there and actually that can make it a little challenging for us as um monolingual lingual historians um full credit i've tried many times languages just can't do it um because I, I personally rely on translated uh, French and German volumes and getting really good quality translated French volumes that that talk in the same level of military history uh, as we have in Britain is actually very challenging. There are some books, Michael Goya's um, Flesh and Steel uh, springs to mind, uh, but there, there just isn't the, the resources to draw upon. So uh, it's difficult to compare these debates. Well, with, with me, it's Scoreboy French plus Google Translate. <laughs> for me it's just google translate and <laughs> many i have to say fruitless hours spent on duolingo but uh I, I can i can order a sandwich in excruciating french so uh i'm probably at the level of the average british tommy was in the uh, the first world war yeah it's easier to read than speak i think uh, okay <laughs> yes. next uh next, next next question so another question from martin frost who wrote into us to ask are there any particular battles that you find especially fascinating? Do you have, in inverted commas, a favourite battle? What about what do you think, Gary? Do you have a favourite battle? Define favourite. I mean, ones I find particularly interesting, particularly fascinating, done a lot of reading on the answer is yes. Uh, and they range from obvious things that I've studied for professional reasons, like the Somme. I'm a bit wary about using the word favorite in this sort of context because it's not like having a a favorite pair of shoes or a favorite football <laughs> team we are talking about historical events in which people were died people were wounded horrible things happened but we're, we're set that to one side what i'm reading about at the moment uh with a great deal of fascination are, are the battles plural of el alamein in, mm, mm. in in the second world war so we've got First Alamein, which kicks off at the end of June, beginning of July 1942. The British are desperately defending along the Alamein mm. line, uh, stretches mm. basically from, from the coast uh, west of Alexandria. Do I mean west? Yes, I do mean west of Alexandria, down to the Katara Depression. Uh, so Orkin Lex in command. Then, of course, Montgomery, come, uh, Montgomery is appointed to replace Orkin Lex. Uh, Churchill sacks Orkinleck. You have the Battle of Alam Halfa, which is Rommel's final uh, final offensive, really, in, in, in Egypt. And then you have the second Battle of Alamein, or the third Battle of Alamein, if you count uh, Alam Halfa as a Battle of Alamein in its own right, which kicks off in, in, in late October. And the reason I find this particularly fascinating is it's a much mythologized battle. Um, it's only relatively recently that we've had some really crunchy scholarship on it so mm. uh, my, my friend and colleague uh, neil barr uh excellent book called pendulum of war came out i think it must be in 2004 looking at the three battles of alamein peter stanley who i've just mentioned in a, a reply to an earlier question wrote uh, uh, with a with a with a, another author i think his name's mark johnson uh, a really good book about ninth australian division at Alamein. Uh, Glyn Harper in Australia has written about the, the New Zealand division. So there's now some really, really good scholarship about it. And the thing which particularly fascinates me is 
it's an army which is learning very, very fast uh, from defeat, is mm. transitioning from one form of warfare to another. Montgomery, of course, tries to rewrite history after the Second World War by claiming that, you know, he scrapped everything that had been prepared by his predecessors, including plans to, to, to retreat to the Nile Delta. And it's, 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 it's year zero when Monty comes in, so he can claim the credit for, for everything. Well, clearly that's not actually true. And mm. the, the, uh, the, the non-mythical version of Alamein, I think, is much more interesting than the everything went according to planned version, which, of course, is also not true because Montgomery's initial campaign, um, Lightfoot, uh, grinds to a halt halfway through the, the second Battle of Alamein in, in November. He has to restart it, reboot it, if you like, Operation Supercharge, which does actually break through. And it's an army in transition. It's an army that's groping towards the right tactics, but in the end gets them. And I think in the end, mm. what fascinates me, I guess, coming from my professional background, is that it's a, it's essentially it's a, an updated version of a First World War battle, a battle which the British have been seeking to avoid up to that point. And yet, given that you have a front which has flanks which cannot be turned, all the attacks need to be frontal. And so you have uh, the methods of 1918 suitably updated. So uh, use of artillery is very much in a 1918 way. Plus you have tanks, plus you have the added problem of minefields, which aren't really uh, a major challenge in the First World War. And you have an army which in the end is on pretty good form. But, mm. and I remember uh, Neil Barr making this point many years ago, uh, and it really, really struck home to me, this expertise isn't then transferred straight away to the rest of the army because the 8th army which fights Alamein basically for all sorts of reasons is broken up. The 8th army which then lands in Sicily in July 1943 uh, has some different formations involved and you simply don't have the same level of expertise being transferred from battle to battle from formation to formation. So in many ways the army has to sort of begin a, a fresh learning curve in the fighting in Sicily and Italy. So mm. it's a it's a fascinating battle. It's a very flawed battle, I think, from the point of view of, of the Allies. But nonetheless, it's a battle which I think says an awful lot about the strengths and weaknesses of not just the British Army, but British Empire armies uh, in the desert in, in, in the Second World War. Mm. Yeah. Ever tempted to write a, a book on this yourself, Gary? Well, possibly. Uh, <laughs> it's my current book which is called civilian armies uh, the experience of british and dominion soldiers in the two world wars i i'm about three quarters of the way through the chapter on desert warfare and obviously alamein pays a, a fairly uh, big big uh, role in that i'm actually comparing it with the fighting for gaza in the first world war because mm, uh, mm. the, the the battles do have some things in, in common and, I, and this is one of the themes of my book you know comparisons and indeed uh, um, contrasts but, but between the two world wars but yes i not necessarily on alamein itself but writing something on the desert war um, that is something that, that appeals to me at some point in the future that's very interesting so well there, there's a there's a project to add to the uh, add to the list almost as big as the pile of books to read beside my bed it must be said <laughs> okay so how, how would you deal with this question so really do i first of all i, I 
again, I just echo your comments about favourite is a really loaded and, and not quite correct word, but a battle I find fascinating and I've, I've read as just about everything I can to read about it is actually the Battle of Antietam in the American Civil War, which is single bloodiest day of the American Civil War. Um, although Gettysburg's a bloodier battle overall, Antietam is, is a one-day battle. And there's, there's several things that really interest me uh, about this. One is I think Antietam as a battlefield is one of the most evocative of the, the U.S. Civil War. I actually think it's a lot more evocative than, than Gettysburg. Gettysburg's fascinating, but it's so covered with statues and it's always crawling with tour groups that it's difficult to really get a feel for the, for the battle. Whereas Antietam is extremely quiet. Um, most of the times you go there, you're going to have the place to yourself. And it's also a relatively small battle, uh, although it's a little bit of a, a, a pull to get down to the southern end of it. You can walk Antietam in a day. And that's really valuable, I think. And the, the, the concentrated fighting up in the northern half of the battle is really small. It, the, the distances are really short. It's really striking to go from the, the wheat field to the sunken lane where there was so much intense fighting, the Dunker Church. You can do it in just really 10 minutes each way. It's very, very small, compact battlefield and very evocative. Well, that's, that's the, one I haven't visited, actually. I've, I've, been to, mm. I've been to Shiloh. I've been to Vicksburg. Uh, but never Antietam. Well, I highly recommend it. If you're ever in the, the Washington, D.C. area or even in Virginia, it's pretty easy drive, pretty easily accessible. And I think actually studying it is fascinating because it's the most incredible battle, really. You have the Union under uh, George McClellan. You've actually captured the Confederate plants. Uh, they know that the Confederates are in a very vulnerable position. They've divided their army. They're there for the taking. Wrapped round this... cigars, as I mentioned. Wrapped round cigars, some discarded cigars. Incredible. Boking is bad for you, clearly. Clearly. Uh, and, uh, they must have been pretty bad cigars for this person to discard them so readily. Um, but... It's it's a campaign the Union could have ended the the entire Civil War with a stroke. The the Confederates are in an appalling position. They're isolated. They're in uh, not strictly speaking Northern Territory. Maryland's a border state. It's not declared fully for either side. They've got their backs to a river. They're massively outnumbered, and and McClellan manages to completely foul it up and, and fail to win this battle. And partially that's McClellan's incompetence, but it's also just down to the sheer fighting power of the Confederates and leaving aside the, the cause they fight for, the morality of it or anything else, the, this is the Army of Northern Virginia uh, showing unbelievable grit and blood and guts um, far from home in a desperate position. The way they managed to fight the Union to a standstill is just, I still struggle to comprehend it, to grasp it. It's partially Union mistakes, piecemeal attacks, and so on. Uh, but the Confederate line, talk about a thin grey line. Um, it's just a remarkable battle. That There was so much at stake because if the Union had crushed Lee and the army here, I think the war could have ended by Christmas 1862. And of course, it's one of those battles that has an immediate, very uh, uh, noticeable political impact. Also, it's, it's one of those battles in which you can directly trace cause and effect because Antietam is enough of a victory for the North for Lincoln to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm -hmm. And yes. so, you know, this, this, this is huge. This actually changes mm. the nature of the Civil War. It changes ultimately the, the nature, nature of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Completely. So this is a, it doesn't end the war there and then, but 
quite rightly, it completely changes the nature of the war and it puts the US onto a brand new trajectory. So even though the, the Union don't win a decisive victory, they win enough of victory to prompt Lincoln to do this. So its consequences are huge. The battle itself is just remarkable, um, bitter, intense, close-range fighting. Uh, I've read just about everything I can to read on it. Um, in actual terms of, of modern histories, it's not actually that much. Uh, Landscape Painted Red uh, by Stephen Sears is the, the standard work, a, a monumental narrative. There's been some analytical works on the wider campaign. Gary Gallagher's uh, editor collection, the Antietam campaign, is very interesting. But in terms of the nuts and bolts of the battle, we've got some unit histories. Um, we've got a lot of memoirs and accounts and things. It's still, a, in my humble opinion, it's still a battle that is awaiting the definitive book about it um good good campaign histories good elements of it but i think something that brings all those threads together and just explains exactly how did the confederates survive this um is is still waiting to be written so add that to my list of endless future projects <laughs> <laughs> and of course you have the advantage that you read the language of both combatants always helpful uh i can even i even got a stetson from texas when i was down there so i can <laughs> i can pass as a as a member of the texas brigade if i have to <laughs> right well we have time for one last question which i think is from lisa williams that's correct Yes, Lisa Williams writes in with a, a sort of speculative question saying, is there any conflict that we have not studied in depth that we would like to study in the future and why? Good question. What do you think, Gary? Well, the problem is I've got a real butterfly mind. And so I watch a television programme, I read a book or something like that, and I get fascinated by the subject. I want to know more about it. And more often than not, I then go and buy a buy a book and uh, and which may or may not be be be, be read but I, I i i'm endlessly fascinated by bits of history that i don't know very much about and recently i've been really interested in the 17th century in england i've just finished reading uh, a book by robert harris a novel uh, called act of oblivion which is about a manhunt for two of the regicides the signatories of charles the first's um, death warrant uh, in, in 1649 and I've been reading some other stuff on the 17th century and I really wish I knew more about it not least because where I live I'm only about 10 miles from the battlefield of Newbury a major battle in the English Civil War uh, Oxford is just up the road again it was uh, it was uh, Charles the first capital at one point during the Civil War so I all really ought to know more about this war which is happening all around where, where i happen to live um <laughs> and i've read i've read stuff on on uh on the civil war in the past i've read some very interesting books austrin woolrich's book i think it's simply called battles of the english civil war in the pan british battles series which came out of the 1970s i read that when i was about 17 or 18 mm. and i've often thought that's really interesting i need to go back to that i never quite have so one of these days <laughs> i will do more reading on the as we now call it, the British Civil Wars. Yes, yes. Well, the gr great answer. And uh, that, that's that's one I would certainly be interested in uh, in, in following up on. But my, my answer, and I'm like you, Gary, I, I have what I would describe as a magpie brain. So I pick up shiny ideas and put them in my nest and go, how wonderful. 
and then I put more ideas on top of them and I forget the original ideas and we just go round and round and uh, I am an absolute bibliophile maybe a book addict I have far too many books they're all over the place I read far too many um I forget half of what I've read half the time um one uh and this is it's it's come actually from uh my recent visit to Texas I've become really, really, really interested in the Comanche Wars between not just um, the Anglo settlers in Texas, but also the um, the Spanish, who, of course, were in what we now call Texas long before. And the interactions with the Comanche and just Comanche as a um, not only as a society and as a, uh, a culture, but as a war fighting power, because they were absolute for a, about a century from their uh, widespread adoption of the horse around about the mid 1700s up until around about the mid 1800s, they were the dominant military power in the southwestern United States to the point that the Spanish were even paying them a, a form of tribute to just stop them coming and raiding deep into Spanish held territory. Um, there's, I've just started actually reading about the the um, what we can call the the Comanche Wars. Obviously, these are went on for for some time and. Um, with various consequences. I've just started reading a book uh, called Empire of the Summer Moon by S.C. Gwynn, which is about the, the latter stages, the, the, uh, the, it's about the rise and fall of the Comanches. Uh, very interesting. I know that from American friends and colleagues that it's not considered a perfect book, that it's got some flaws with it. But just the, then the whole, that whole period, because it's bound up in a number of conflicts, not a, the, between the Comanches and the Apache, the Comanches and the Spanish, the Comanches and the white settlers, but also between the Spanish and the Texans as well. And um, I've been absolutely gripped with this this period. I'm staggered by how deadly this period was. And it makes me wonder, why did anybody want to go to Texas? Because it's <laughs> inhospitable climate. Life there is really bleak and grim. The threat of violence is constant. And threat of extreme violence is constant. Law and order is basically at the point of a gun. And I think... Why do people go there? This sounds absolutely horrible. I think yeah. I'd rather stay in my Victorian tenement building and you know take my chances. That uh, fascinating period yeah, and yeah. fascinating people as well. Uh, something I know absolutely nothing about, but hey, I can I can see you're enthusiastic enthusiastic about it, and uh, <laughs> I suspect I could be too if I started reading around the subject. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Um, I hope that you've enjoyed listening to us talking through these questions um i think it's a quite a successful format so we'd like to do this at some point in the future so uh in due course we'll put out another call for questions to add to the ones we've already already have so we better wrap this episode up by saying goodbye from me professor gary sheffield and goodbye for me dr spencer jones